Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining people from around the world to Israel, focusing on ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Podash in California, and I'm joined with my long co-host and friend, Liz Felsern in Jerusalem. Liz. Hi, Alan. How are you? It's always a, I'm, it's always I'm a, well. It's always a challenge to ask you that during this time of major conflict in Israel. Um, we have a lot to talk about today. I have a lot to ask you about and kind of just share some of my thoughts. Um, but we, um, this was a challenging week for Israel. It was the hundred days of of the war and captivity. It's the first birthday of Kfir Bibas, the nine-month-old that turned a year old. Um, and other things, plus the holiday of Tubishvat is coming up this week. But I, I know that when we spoke last, you were talking about a, a young man from Omaha who was going to become a lone soldier in Israel. Did that ceremony, did his arrival ever happen? Yes. Um, our lone soldier arrived and spent a week with us and then began his official program as part of the Garin Sabar, which is the name of a program here in Israel that brings some 400 lone soldiers to Israel annually. And we had the privilege of hosting him and also the pleasure of seeing the opening ceremony for his cohort of the program, which was a pretty amazing thing. I mean, especially with what's going on in Israel right now and knowing what we know about what college campuses are like and other young people this same age are feeling or not feeling about Israel, to know that these young people from all over the world have made a very conscious decision to pick up their lives and come to Israel and join the army is, you know, I mean, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing you, thing to see. Can you talk a little bit about what the Lone Soldier Program is and how does one decide to come and be part of those 400 individuals? Where do they come from? Who are they? Why are they, you know, why are they doing what they're doing? Yeah, so this particular program started about 30 years ago um, with the thinking that there had always been a certain number of lone soldiers, people that would come from abroad and move to Israel for the purposes of joining the army. And this program said, you know what, if if these young people are going to come to Israel, we owe it to them to uh, support them in the best way that we can and to try and make their absorption and the beginning of their lives in Israel as successful as we can. We don't want people to come to the army and only experience the hard parts of living in Israel without a support system. We want them to afterwards be able to study and establish good careers and families and all of that. So this program was built to do all of those things. So from even before they start their service, the participants are together in a group. Their, their motto is that they become one another's family and they have like a counselor and a coordinator that sees them all the way through their service and help them with whatever they need, whether it's language or healthcare or supplies or anything else. Um, and then the program stays with them for a certain period of time afterwards as they do start their 
academic studies or career or families or whatever their next steps in the country are going to be, but that they're not doing it alone, even though they're called right a lone soldier because they don't have family here in Israel. So do they become Israeli citizens the minute they decide to do this, or are they still citizens of the country they're coming from and are basically uh, temporary residents or temporary citizens of Israel? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so when they come on this program, they do become Israeli citizens first. So they have filled out all of their paperwork and gone through the process in advance so that when they arrive in Israel at the airport, they officially become citizens, they get their ID card, they get their health insurance, they get the beginning, the initial benefits that one gets when becoming an Israeli citizen. And they are now, yeah, they're officially Israeli. And the program will help them depending on how much Hebrew they need before they can start the army to pick what would be a meaningful service for them, right, depending on their interests and abilities. Uh, but th- yes, they are Israeli. Um, so here's this group of people that come in. Did you go to the ceremony, their induction ceremony that, that they have? And what was that like if you did? We did. Yes, we went to the ceremony. Um, so the, the young people that are starting the program are coming from all over the world. There's a group of native Russian speakers. There's a group of native Spanish speakers. There's a group of Americans. There's a group of Australians and Europeans. And in this case, there was also another group for uh, religiously observant participants. And the, there were, I don't know, several hundred people attending this ceremony which took place, I would say, sort of half in English, half in Hebrew, with speakers ranging from the mayor of the city that was hosting the ceremony and the um, representative of the national kibbutz movement. The kibbutzim are very involved in this program because they host the young people. Each group goes to a different kibbutz all around the country. And um, the from the various youth movements, representatives were there. And all of the parents of these hundred young people were on Zoom, right? The parents are at home in their countries of origin, but they had the opportunity to see the ceremony and to hear the country saying to their children, first of all, you know, thank you for coming and we're going to support you. But to say also to the parents, you know, thank you for entrusting us with your children. I guess it's their choice because they're not really children anymore. They're all 18, 19, 20 years old, but still, um, right, to be able to say to these parents, we're going to, we're going to take care of them, um, was a, was a beautiful ceremony to see and, and, and surprising in many ways. We don't normally think of young people from abroad as making such a strong statement of support for Israel. But of course, these particular young people are making the strongest statement that one could possibly make. Do you do you think that the timing of them becoming lone soldiers and coming to Israel has anything to do with the climate today uh, around the world in terms of the rise of anti-Semitism or the conflict with Hamas? Is the, is the Zionism, the passion that they have, is it being fueled by some of these things? Or is it something they've lived with their whole lives and now this is kind of an accomplishment? So uh, 
certainly their Zionism is informed by what's going on around the world in anti-Semitism. I don't know if it's still too soon to say whether it's sort of causing it. And I don't know whether the numbers for this program are are going up or have changed dramatically in the past three months. The folks that are coming now are people that had already been planning this process before the war started. I, I don't think that there's anybody that, because of the war, said, okay, now I'm going to make Aliyah, I'm going to move to Israel and join the army because it takes longer than that, right? It takes more than three months to do all of the paperwork and planning. So so we're not seeing that kind of a a wave of response yet, whether we will three months or six months from now, I, I don't know. So this is something you'll stay in touch with this young man throughout his time uh, in service and hopefully... Everything will be smooth, but he they will serve the same length of time that Israeli um, citizens serve in the army. Yes. Yeah. They have all the rights and obligations of every other young Israeli. Yeah. They'll do a full service. And yes, we will stay in touch for sure. So I'm sure over the course of time with our podcast, you'll give an update on on how this individual is doing. And since we both know, I'll be happy to. I'll also find out if I'm allowed to talk about this person by name. I don't want to make well, any we assumptions. Both, we have it right. I agree that we we both know who who the family is. So I don't want to do that either. So I, that's respectful. I appreciate that. So let's let's move on a little bit since this has been a really challenging week in Israel. Um, the war has been on for well over a hundred days. The hostages were in day 107 of the hostages being held in captivity. There are 136 being held. It was 132, and then they added the four um, individuals who have been held in captivity since, I think, what, years ago. Um, so it's 136 mm-hmm. people. Hasn't been any movement really on on releasing or a ceasefire or anything. What, what are you picking up from your end on, on all that? Um, I... Look, I mean, people are seeing the same news that I'm seeing and you're seeing. I would add maybe only that because it now feels like it has been such a long time without any movement, without any progress, right? Not the not the full 107 days because we did have release of hostages um, during the initial ceasefire. But even since then, now it's been, you know, 50 days. With no with no movement and no progress that the general public is privy to in terms of bringing hostages home, um, it gets harder and harder. And I think that we are starting to see more dissension in the Israeli public and amongst you know different political factions. Whereas in the beginning of the war, there was such a strong message of unity. And and we did talk about this a couple of weeks ago, right? That at some point you have to raise the question of, well, okay, we we did our duty. We we were a united front for quite a while, but at which point do we say we just have different visions? And you know, and there is allowed to be some disagreement with how the war is being thought of how diplomacy is or is not being used to bring hostages home. And we're starting to see more 
of that, more talk about uh, the likelihood of elections happening at some point in 2024, right? All of the conversations about what that might look like. And you and I have had quite a number of conversations about all the many different things that go into figuring out what an election will look like and all the different ways the numbers can go. And those are the conversations that are starting to happen now of what what would it look like were elections to be called soon. I think part of that has to do with the American elections that are going to take place in 2024 and the influence that President Biden has had on Israel during this war. And he now has to think about his own election. And there's, you know, at the beginning, there was quite a bit of support for what he was providing to Israel and to Prime Minister Netanyahu, but there seems to be much more dissension now. And you can see a little bit more of his own um, direction, you know, being firmer in um, Anthony Blinken being in Israel and others trying to influence how Israel moves forward with this. The, the, uh, the civilian death toll in Gaza is still being played out much more in America than the situation with the hostages. Uh, I will share that there have been more of the hostages that have been released have been talking publicly about their experiences, and that's been getting some coverage. But the the death toll in Gaza is still, you know, front and center in most of the mainstream media in America. And recently, the the dissension in the government has been taking some, you know, significance in American media. So the fact the other day that um, the uh, opposition leader, Yair Lapid, kind of suggested that Netanyahu should resign, that some some members of the military are also suggesting that it's time for elections. So that's playing out here in America, and, it, and it's kind of challenging to see that when Israel's trying to work through this major conflict. Yeah. Yeah, look, the it gets much less media attention here, but still certainly nobody in Israel is unaware of the loss of life in Gaza. But there's a very big question of well what do what do we do about that, right? What is a reasonable step? We can't not wage a defensive war. And we believe that our military is doing it in the best way that they know how, in the best way that they can, given the circumstances and this type of, you know, urban warfare with purposefully civilian targets, you know, being used as military installations and all of that. We don't know what other options are out there. Um, well, I, I'm going to just jump in because one of yeah. the one of the clearest options is Hamas releases all the hostages and then there's no need for... For sure, but that's not an option that's within our control, right? I'm talking about what are the options within our control. Yes, that would be the, the best option. That would be an excellent option. We'd love to see that one happen. So when, but, all, when, all yeah. the foreign, when all the foreign governments are calling for Israel to, you know, cease fire, they're not leading with... Well, you know, only if Hamas releases the hostages, then a ceasefire really isn't necessary. Israel will cease doing what they're doing. And we didn't talk about it last week because um, we didn't really talk, but the International Court of Justice had their hearing last Thursday and Friday. And, um, you know, it was really, in my opinion, wasn't productive in the sense of 
solving this problem was more of putting the blame on Israel and, and no responsibility on Hamas from the South African perspective. And so that that is leading into the international view of all this, that Israel is this small country, but with a lot of uh, power and influence, yet the rest of the world is viewing Israel as being the aggressor in this. And it's not. When you look at the fact that Hamas has you know, created all this conflict, just tell them to stop doing what they're doing and release the hostages and everything will be somewhat back to normal, except for all the devastation that's taking place, which Hamas has to take responsibility for. In my, yeah, on in both my, sides. In my opinion. Um, but, you know, the thing that has gotten a lot of play in America uh, from more of the social media side is the one-year birthday in captivity of the nine-month-old who was captive uh, on October 7th, Kfir Bibas. I'm pretty sure that also got played out quite a bit in Israel as well. Yes. Um, you know, I think that those two little redheads, right, that nobody in Israel doesn't know who they are, were the poster children for a long time of the hostages and helping people remember what it means that families, you know, with people of all ages, including babies, were taken. And now to have those two be the only two children that have not come home is is devastating. And um yeah, I mean everyone in Israel feels like those are our babies and They've been gone for over three months and to think about what a one-year-old birthday ought to be like for every one-year-old of every religious and ethnic background compared to what this one is experiencing. Um, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And with the extensive military activity that Israel is undertaking in Gaza, they're discovering more and more of the tunnels. And I recently read a report um, that they've discovered, you know, the tunnels that some of the hostages have been in and just how how bleak that life experience is for these uh, hostages. And then, as, as I mentioned earlier, several of the hostages that were released, you know, 50 some days ago are starting to speak up about their experience. Um, and it's tragic. It's really, really tragic. It's devastating. Yep. Can I shift a little bit? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> one of the things we talk quite a bit about are the Jewish holidays and how they're, exp how they're you know, experienced in Israel versus the state. So this week will be Tu Bishvat, the holiday or the new year of trees. Uh, one of the things that you and I always talk about are the, the festive foods that come along with the holidays. I think last time we talked about Tubishvat, it's a lot, a lot about nuts and dried fruits. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and so my interesting Tubishvat tidbit for this year, or one of them, is that you're right, traditionally dried fruits Fruit and nuts are kind of the mainstay food-wise of the holiday. It's like that and planting trees, right? Um, but because of the war, 
actually the a big call has gone out for people um not to buy dried fruit but rather to buy fresh fruit because it supports Israeli agriculture and the dried fruits are by and large imported from other countries and that uh, people are also behind this from a health standpoint that fresh fruit is much healthier than dried fruit which includes certain preservatives and chemicals um so there's a definitely a push from all the agricultural organizations and health organizations in Israel this year to for people to buy fresh fruit and you can there are a lot of fresh fruits that are available in Israel all through the winter grown locally um so that is new for this tubishvat definitely unique to to this wartime tubishvat so that's one one point so what can you just do a quick synopsis on what fresh fruits are available at this time of the year yep there's apples and pears and kiwis and grapefruit and uh, persimmons and pomelas and probably more but those are the main ones that uh, that come to mind so i i just want to jump in for a second because you know the issue of fresh fruits versus imported dried fruits is very important right now you talked about it a little bit that the agricultural challenges today because of the the war and people going off into reserve duty into Milouim, and the farms and kibbutzim are short of help picking your own fruits uh, this time of year is that something people are doing they're going down and volunteering to pick their own fruits um, that's interesting. So people have been, of course, doing a lot of agricultural volunteer work since the beginning of the war. I haven't heard anything specifically about going to pick one's own tubishvat fruits, but um, I'm sure somebody has thought of that and it's an option. Um, it just re- it reminds me of uh, fall in America where you go apple picking. So Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So you had so, one other you had one other tidbit you wanted to share about uh My other tidbit, which I did not realize before, but Tubishvat, in addition to being Tubishvat, is also the anniversary of the Knesset. The first sitting of the Knesset took place on Tubishvat in 1949. And so every year on Tubishvat is also the anniversary of the Knesset. So this um, will be the 75th anniversary of the Knesset sitting together as a as a legislative body. Um, that's a bit of trivia. That was interesting. It's a bit of trivia I didn't know. Uh, so thank you yes. for that. Apparently on their way to the first sitting, they stopped and planted trees on the way because it was too bishvat. So I also heard this morning that uh, the activity in the Knesset was very chaotic today. Because they yeah, man, they're always <laughs> yelling and screaming at each other, but especially now, right? Fuses are very short, tensions are very high, um, and Israeli politicians apparently do not hesitate to call one another some choice names in these quite public, well-recorded forums. Yeah, well, we don't need to repeat any of the things that they said, but uh, we do need to pay attention to the nature of the dysfunction of the Knesset. Um, but I think it's also good for us to look at the coming week 
and to and to see what it is what is it that you think is going to take place this week that we should plan on for our discussion next Sunday. May is the ICJ going to come out with their ruling this week? Do you think? I am. I you know try not to pay attention because I I really. I would like to have faith in international organizations doing what's right. But when we look at, for example, like the record of the UN having, you know, chastised Israel twice as many times as the combined total of every other nation on the planet. And we think about all of the human rights abuses that have happened. I mean, it's hard to to have faith that the system is going to do what's right. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that International Court of Justice. I will show you that most of what I'm hearing and reading from outside of Israel about the ICJ is that it's it is very, very not that the ICJ itself is biased, but the argument that South Africa is providing uh, as their argument is really not fair and um you know, reflective of what Israel is trying to to do to protect its citizens. So we'll we'll have right. To... I mean, look, I certainly agree with that statement. The question is, did it really have to get to this point? Should it not have been thrown out much earlier on? Should someone have not said this is ridiculous? This isn't even a charge that's worth looking at. Right? You can accuse Israel of a lot of things, but not genocide. It's just has no connection to what is actually happening on the ground. It's not a. Yeah, it, it goes to the, I'm going to just say it goes to the global, my feeling, the global anti-Semitism that has been, you know, under the surface, it has come full surface uh, lately. Um, I had an opportunity to follow some of the Western, not the Western, the World Economic Forum this week. And quite a bit of the sessions that I zoomed in on were dealing with Israel and um, the current conflict. Uh, President Herzog and his wife both participated in a session. President Herzog, uh, during his um, uh, interview, had a, the picture of Kfar Bibas on the stage with him. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he's bringing the story of what's going on to the world, you know, front and center. And yeah. As he should, right? That is his role to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I should let you go. Uh, this has been a good uh, roundup of a challenging week. Uh, look forward to our conversation next week. Anything else you want to add before we sign off? No, just thank you, and uh, I hope we all manage to have some uh, fresh fruit, some moments of light in the in the news, and have some fresh fruit. Yes. So happy Tubishvat to your family and to you, and we'll talk soon. And thank you all for listening. This has been Israel Rebound, a podcast bringing a variety of topics to our listeners from around the world. Thank you all again for listening, and thank you, Liz. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everyone.